Good morning, North Shore. My name is Sanjay Merchant. If I haven't met you, I'm a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and so I have the privilege of coming here. Um, it used to be once a month, but you know, during this pandemic, I haven't been here, so it's really good to be back. It's good to see you guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, and round of applause for you as well. I mean, it's, it's a major hurdle just to make it to church these days, unfortunately. We're starting a new teaching series in the book of Ruth. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be teaching through, we're going to be reading together, we're going to be learning about uh, the book of Ruth and fellowshipping around the book of Ruth. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Ruth. We'll look at Ruth chapter 1 today, or open your Bible apps to Ruth chapter 1. Let me read you the first verse. This is how the book of Ruth opens. Ruth 1, 1 through 3 says this. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, for us, we're 21st century Americans or at least you're here in 21st century America if you're not. These are all foreign places to us, let alone foreign names. The book opens by saying, in the time of the judges. Now, you're probably familiar with that. We've taught here. Uh, I know I've done it myself. We've taught on the judges. But let's give a little bit of historical and biblical context. One of the most important things for me as a pastor here at North Shore is to help you guys understand the context of the Bible. Uh, we want to be a Bible-reading and therefore Bible-believing church. And in order to get there, we have to be first Bible-reading. And it's hard to read the Bible. Again, we're in 21st century North America. We are separated from this world by generations. We're separated from this world by a language and vast cultural differences. And it's really hard to just open the Bible and understand what's happening. You can get much of it. And of course, we are guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding. Jesus made this promise. But nonetheless... Hopefully, good teaching, fellowshipping around that, uh, counseling each other on these things can really help us understand the concept of uh, the context of the Bible. And once we get there, well, then reading the Bible becomes a much more edifying and, and, and building process for your life, right? And you come closer to the Lord through this. So um, let me give you some of the context here. It starts off by saying, in the time of the judges, all right? So we're going to very quickly, I mean, very quickly survey the history of the Bible that gets us to the time of the judges and what the readers of Ruth would have understood. The original readers uh, among the Israelites would have known this to mean. Go back to the very earliest parts of the Bible. We find this, of course, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Job. This is the time of the patriarchs. The patriarchs were the first humans to ever come into fellowship or contact with God in this prophetic way. We have a slide on Abraham and the patriarchs. Uh, going, again, way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, okay? This is where the Bible starts. We find Adam and Eve at fellowship with God in this garden, and they sin, and that fellowship is broken. And not only is fellowship broken with God, but because fellowship is broken, well, we lose knowledge of God. Humanity falls into total ignorance of God, to wild confusion, 
one of the earliest uh, pieces of Revelation is the book of Job. And we find in the book of Job this very obscure individual who seems to have some knowledge of God. And he has a group of friends who seem to have some sort of broken, um, in some ways misguided knowledge of God. And this terrible crisis happens in Job's life, and he wonders where God is, and in fact, who God is. He and his friends had thought they had known, and they really didn't know at all. And so they speculate wildly. And they ask God what right he has to allow these tragedies. Who does he think he is? What have I done wrong? And, you know, the book of Job goes on these long monologues with people speculating wildly. And then towards the end of the book of Job, God speaks up. He speaks out of the whirlwind. And he speaks to Job. And this, was a, this is what God says to Job in Job 38, 1 through 7. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or what were its bases? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so now God goes on a monologue explaining to Job who he is. He never explains to Job why he allows the tragedies to happen in his life, but he explains who he is. And in light of God's monologue, Job says in Job 40, verses 3 through 5, he answers the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have, I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And so Job learns this very important lesson about God's character and who he is. And then soon after, this same great God calls a single man. Now, keep in mind, knowledge of God has been lost in the earth. He calls a single man, Abraham. And through Abraham, he begins a long process of revealing himself and reestablishing fellowship with humanity. He makes a promise to Abraham around 2100 BC, BC, and that promise is passed along to his son Isaac and then passed along to his grandson Jacob. And in time, Jacob's family is going to find refuge in Egypt in the time of a famine. And so this is the time of the patriarchs. That takes us from Genesis 1 to the beginning of the book of Exodus, through the book of Job as well. And in this time, the patriarchs learn that God is great and God is good. Again, Job wondered who God was. My tragedy, my suffering, do you not have the power to protect me? God says, indeed I do. Do you not have the love to care for me? God says, indeed I do. Well, then why did you allow this tragedy? God doesn't tell him. But do you believe that I'm great and good? And Job says, I do. I don't understand. I lay my hand over my mouth. That's the knowledge of God for the patriarchs at that time. Then as we open the book of Exodus, we find that Jacob's family that had moved there after a 400-year silence, God doesn't speak to them at all for 400 years, they have grown into a massive nation, a nation called Israel. And they had become a nation of slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh's thumb, and at that time, God remembered, it says, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he honored his promise to them by raising up Moses. And so Exodus 2, 
23 through 25 say this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so around 1450 BC, God raised up Moses and used him as a tool to liberate Israel from Egypt. And so in the Exodus, Israel learned that God remembers and delivers his people, and even among Jews today. This is a major piece of remembrance, that the God of Israel remembers and delivers his people. I mean, think about this. This is pretty amazing. There's a country today called Israel, and there are ethnic Jews today, descendants, actually genetic descendants of these peoples, right? Where are the other nations? Where are the Amalekites? Where are the Hittites? Where are the Amorites? Those nations, those genetic lineages, those cultures are lost but yet the Jews exist today. I take that to be good existing physical evidence of God's continued promise, that he keeps his promises. Well, after he delivers them from Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai. And we read about this in Leviticus very famously. At Mount Sinai, God charged Israel to obey him and to respect his laws because he teaches them that he's holy. And he promised that if they obeyed him, he would keep his presence with them, he would protect them, and he would prosper them. No other nation had that. They all had their false gods, but no nation had the presence of the true God in their midst. Who could conquer them if God was in their midst? Who could conquer them if the presence of the great creator was in their midst? It seemed to the other nations that he was just one other tribal god. All the nations had their gods, and who was Yahweh? Who cares? It's just the God of the Jews. Little did they know that it's the true God, and the gods that they worship are false inventions. God is disguised as a tribal God of the Jews. And in Leviticus 2.26, God says this to Israel, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And so Israel learned through hardship and tragedy, chastisement, in the midst of God's care, that God is holy and not to be trifled with. Israel was supposed to represent God to the nations in this way, represent the true God. Unlike the nations around them, they didn't practice child sacrifice. They didn't practice the most degrading forms of sexual practice. They were to be a very different kind of nation, and they really did stick out like a sore thumb as they obeyed God. But culturally, it was often just difficult to obey God's law, and to be that different. And it was just so natural to fall into the cultural practices of those around you. If you want to enter into commerce with them, if you want to enter into certain cultural practices with them, it just becomes natural. And so Israel just failed to, obey, um, to consistently obey God. And because of that, they were consigned, we see in the book of Numbers, to wander in the wilderness for years for decades. And then we come to the conquest of Canaan. We find in um, the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the beginning of the book of Joshua, Israel comes to the plains of Moab. And uh, I think we should have a slide on that. We should, um, here we go. Israel comes to the plains 
of Moab. And you see they go around Edom, and they come to this land, and the Moabites, this is again where in some generations Ruth and, her, uh, sorry, Naomi, Elimelech, and their family will move. And you see where it is, just uh, to the east, a little bit southeast of the Dead Sea. The land of Canaan, the land that's promised to Israel, is just across the Jordan. So they're across the Jordan, the plains of Moab, and the king of Moab sees this nation of slaves that had a generation before been liberated through Egypt. Certainly the king of Moab had heard the rumors, and he was afraid. He was a man by the name of Balak. And so Balak hired a diviner by the name of Balaam to curse Israel because he knew that he had no power to stop this massive nation coming through his land. And so he, he paid Balaam to curse. And Balaam was some sort of diviner, some sort of prophet, some sort of pagan um, uh, prophet. And he was given money to do this. Apparently, Balaam had some sort of religious integrity, and he said, I can only do what God allows me to do. And so he tries to curse Israel, and he ends up inadvertently blessing Israel three times and proving to Balak and to Moab that God was with Israel. And so this is around 1400 B.C., and at this time, Moses dies at Mount Nebo, and God raises up Joshua to lead them across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And as they crossed over into the promised land, God gave them victory over the Canaanites as they were obedient to him. As they failed to be obedient to him, they didn't prosper. He didn't give them victory. It wasn't about the tribal God of Israel versus the tribal gods of the Canaanites and whose God was stronger. The God of Israel was the only true God. God either gave victory or defeat. The tribal gods played no role in that. And so, as Israel was unfaithful, they were not able to take land. They came into having um, partnerships and legal um, uh, treaties with these lands or with these nations, and God didn't allow for that. So once again, Israel failed to consistently obey God. In Joshua 24, God reminded Israel of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He mentions that he raised up Moses to liberate them from Egypt. He even reminds them that Balak had tried to curse them and that God had blessed them in spite of that and that he had made the walls of Jericho fall when they had no power to do that. They didn't have the military strength to do that, and he gave them Jericho. And in Joshua 24, 13, God says to them, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And in all of this, Israel learned that God provides for his people. Also, that finally takes us to the book of Judges. Israel has now moved from captivity in Egypt through wandering in the wilderness to the plains of Moab with Joshua. They crossed the Jordan into the land that was given to their ancestor, Abraham. Um, new nations lived there, again, these Canaanites, and they practiced the most degrading forms of religion. Um, the notion of religious freedom in the ancient world was unheard of uh, because it wasn't just a nice little um, sort of side project in your life, a little hobby that you have. Oh, you're a religious person. Oh, you go to church. Well, that's interesting, but you're normal besides that, right? <laughs> 
I can trust you outside of that. You've got this little weird thing that you do one day a week, but otherwise you're just a regular person. I tell people, no, I'm not normal at all. You've got me all wrong. I want to be a Christian every day. And in the ancient world, it was a bit different than we find it in our modern secular world. Their religious lives overlapped with their cultures, um, with their notions of citizenship, with their whole notions of family. And so someone else of a different religion was entirely untrustworthy. They lived by an entirely different set of rules. For you and your tribe, their ways were unpredictable and unknown. And so the only solution was conquest. Either we conquer you or you conquer us, but there's no compromise between us. That's how it was. And we find this in the book of Judges. As they move into the land, and we'll see uh, in the book of Judges, the land of Canaan is, uh, there's a map that shows that the land of Canaan is broken up among the tribes. And here are the the various tribes and how God uh, broke up the land. You see Moab there, still in the same spot. But here are the tribes of, of Israel, and they all are, of course, given their own parcels of land, but nonetheless, they're one nation. They don't have a king. Unlike the other nations, they don't have a king at all, at least not a human king. Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, I am your king. You're not like other nations, and you are governed by priests. Now, as they're unfaithful, God allows these pagan nations to conquer them and impose on them not just harsh legal and political regulations, but harsh religious practices that corrupt them. And so as they repented and as they cried out to their God, God would raise up great leaders, or we call them judges, to deliver them. And this happens between about 1450 and about 1050, or 1400 and 1050 BC, so almost 400 years of the time of the judges. And in Judges 10, 11 through 16, um, God says this to Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppress you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to their gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, in this time in the book of Judges, there is um, a judge that God raises up by the name of Ehud, and they are at that time um, actually dominated by the Moabites, by this Moabite religion. They had this god named Chamosh, who um, the Moabites would... um, They would do um, ritual uh, child sacrifice to this god and, again, all sorts of degrading uh, sexual rituals and things like this. And Israel was being pressed into this. God raises up Ehud, and Ehud actually assassinated the king of Moab at the time and broke the years of domination of the Moabites. So it's during this time, after Ehud had had done this, when Moab briefly actually comes under um, uh, the rule of Israel, and the Israelites have some freedom that Elimelech and Naomi and their family in this time of famine move to Moab. In any case, in the time of the judges, Israel learned that God is just. So they learn all these lessons, and then finally we get to the book of Ruth. And you see here in the book of Ruth, we go back, let me just see the the map one more time. In the book of Ruth, we have Naomi and Elimelech leaving Bethlehem. They're citizens of Bethlehem. You see just south of Jerusalem, and they travel around 
the Dead Sea down to Moab because the famine is so bad. So Elimelech and Ruth, uh, sorry, Elimelech and Naomi move to Moab with their sons, and their sons marry Moabite women. Their names are Orpah and Ruth. Oprah, as you know, Oprah Winfrey is actually named after Orpah, but it's mispronounced. I think it's right on her birth certificate. So that's the name Orpah and Ruth are these two Moabite women. There's nothing good ever said about Moabites, let alone Moabite women. Moabite women in the book of Numbers, uh, you can see there, uh, are not respected. They're certainly not chaste women. It's a very licentious culture. Orpah and Ruth, however, seem to be of a different quality. Um, It seems like the family of Elimelech and Naomi is a godsend to them. Well, it is a godsend to them. And for them is a refuge from the horrific Moabite culture that they find themselves embedded in. So they're married to the sons of Elimelech and Naomi. And then in this tragedy, in this time of famine, Elimelech dies and Naomi's two sons die. And now she has no family left. And she tells Orpah and Ruth to return to the land of Moab. They're still young women. They hadn't had children yet. Naomi's an old woman, and she says, leave. You don't have any business with me anymore. I I set you free. I'm no longer your mother-in-law. And so Orpah went back to the Moabite culture and to her gods. Ruth, however, refused and remained faithful to Naomi and clung to her. Naomi laughed at her and said, I'm an old woman. I'm beyond the years of childbearing. I can't make for you another son. And if I could, would you wait around till he was grown and married him? What do you have to do with me anymore? Ruth, just leave me. And Ruth wouldn't do it. In Ruth 1.16 through 17, we see her faithfulness. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. Ruth is a faithful pagan woman. Not only is nothing good ever said about the Moabites, I mean, Ruth just sticks out so much. It's a book of the Bible named after this Moabite woman. It's unheard of. Really shocking if we knew this ancient context. She loves Naomi. Naomi is a godsend to her, but even more so, the God of Israel is a godsend to her, and she would rather die a widow, faithful to her mother-in-law, and never have a husband again than return to Moab and return to the the God of Moab. And so she returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. Now, in the returning in Ruth chapter 1, you'll see that Naomi becomes very, very bitter, as you can imagine. She's lost her husband. She's lost her her sons. The name Naomi means pleasant or sweet. So if you tasted really good fresh strawberry, you might say, this is is Naomi. This is pleasant. This is sweet. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. My name is no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I've become bitter. And uh, I think we can all identify with that sense and that feeling. Um, Life can make us bitter. It's just the natural 
So it's just the natural progression of things. Maybe first in small ways, and then as we experience more things in life, there are definitely opportunities for us to grow in bitterness because our lives slowly over time seem to lose value and significance. When I was younger, my value and my significance was in athletics. I thought like a lot of young men that I'd go on and play in the NFL. I didn't realize that you had to be really strong and fast and uh, you had to have peculiar athleticism. I thought it was easier than that. It's actually very, very difficult. <laughs> and there came a time when nobody wanted me on their team anymore. When I was young, I was always picked first. And then there came a time where my value and my identity as an athlete came to an end. It was a little bit shocking for me. A little bit of bitterness grew in my heart. I was a little bit jealous of those who were able to go on and play more. I, I got a really awesome testimony. I wasn't planning on telling you this, but my son, my oldest son, my 18-year-old, just got a Division I scholarship to play lacrosse. And uh, he's a senior in high school. I'm super proud of him, so I live vicariously through him. <laughs> right, thank you. Because that was my desire, and I try not to put that on him. It's his wish and his desire, and he wants to do it, and I only support him in it. But he knows that his value and his identity as an athlete will come to an end. At some point in the near future, no one will pick him anymore. And they'll say, we've got somebody else who's better. They have more value. And our lives become bitter as we realize that our value begins to fade. Naomi's value, apparently, was in her motherhood, in her identity as a mother. Her husband was gone. She was past the age of childbearing, but even if she wanted to, her husband is dead. She doesn't have a man anymore. Her sons are dead. She'll never be a grandmother. And now her life and her value uh, seem to entirely dissipate before her eyes. So she's utterly bitter. So what can God do in that? I mean, how can God redeem that? What is it to redeem something? It's to return the value to something that was thought to be valueless, something that lost value, to reinvest it with value. How can her motherhood be returned to her? Impossible. There's no earthly means by which her motherhood can be returned to her except for this very thin thread, Ruth's faithfulness and loyalty to Naomi. I won't leave you. She's no longer a mother of sons, but she still has a daughter-in-law. And as we'll see in the book of Ruth, God will redeem her motherhood in this most unexpected way. We'll see through a process called Leverite marriage, which is in the, which is in the law of Moses, uh, she will um, legally receive a son who will redeem her line. And at the end of the book of Ruth, I won't give it all away, we'll read it and we'll teach through it and we'll think through it, but what will happen is Naomi will have a new son, a legal son by the name of Boaz, who will marry Ruth and redeem Naomi's line. And Naomi unexpectedly will become a grandmother and her bitterness will be turned back again into sweetness. But this is the way that God redeems. He doesn't just redeem by returning the value that was lost, but he redeems in unexpected and unimaginable ways. Because her grandson, through Ruth, will be the grandfather himself of the great King David. So can you imagine? Your descendant is the great king of Israel, and through the great King David the promise will be passed along that his own descendant will be not only a great king, but an eternal king, a king of kings, 
who himself redeems the whole world. So not only does God redeem her motherhood and her identity, but she actually becomes, if you read the genealogy in Luke, she becomes the grandmother, 40 times removed, over 40 times removed, of Mary, in whom motherhood is ultimately glorified. The most important womb in all of human history carries the Son of God. This is how God redeems her motherhood when all is lost. It's a pretty stunning story. No one person told that story. That story is told by prophets and apostles over millennia. Well, it's amazing. So what does the church learn in all of this? What does this have to do with us? We find that in Jesus, who is himself the descendant of Naomi, through Mary, David, and Ruth, we see in the life of Jesus that God is great and holy and just. Jesus says to his disciples, when you've seen me, you've seen God. The apostles say that he is the icon of the Father, the exact representation of God, God taken on human flesh. We see God's greatness and goodness and holiness and justice in the life of Jesus. When I was a brand new Christian, actually the night I became a Christian, I read the book of John. I thought I was an atheist at the time. I was 19. I didn't know what it was to be an atheist. I hadn't really thought through it. I was still a kid. But I had this arrogant attitude about God, and I started reading the book of John because a friend prayed for me. Something happened when he prayed for me. It was a really weird experience. And I started reading the book of John. I read the first couple verses, and it said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I thought, I have no idea what that means. That is so confusing. Uh, Who's this Word? I know what you mean by God. With God and is God, I don't know where you're going. Uh, But for some reason, although that's very frustrating, and I should have stopped right there, like when I first read the book, it's going to come to me in a second, you'll know, I don't remember the title, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, thank you, Tale of Two Cities, blank for a minute. I remember in eighth grade, I had to read that book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and I went, what? (laughs) Which one was it? I literally closed the book and never read another line. (laughs) My mother laughed. I said, I don't know which one it was. John was even more confounding than A Tale of Two Cities. I should have stopped right there, and I didn't. I kept on reading. And as an atheist that night becoming a believer, I encountered the person of Jesus. And I remember at one point, I had a math test in the morning. It must have been about two in the morning, and I'm not studying for this test. And I'm just weeping. And for the first time, I'm encountering the person of Jesus. And I had this thought to myself, if anyone knows God, I still don't think anyone knows God. I think you're fooling yourselves. But if anyone knows God, Jesus knew God. And the person of Jesus just struck me. I I can't tell you. Um, It's unfortunate reading it now as a Christian. So many things about Jesus are just common to me. So many things about the Bible are just common to me. It's just biblical. It just sounds like the Bible, and I'm familiar with it. And unfortunately, familiarity is sort of misleading to us. It makes us believe that we know things that we don't. But having this time as an atheist, just being so stunned by the person of Jesus, I saw God in Jesus. And then in time, of course, I began attending church, and eventually I had the opportunity to go to seminary, and I learned so many things. Um, Jesus remembers us on the cross, just like God remembered Israel when they were in captivity in, in Egypt. Jesus delivers us from sin, just as God repeatedly delivers Israel from their tormentors. 
and from those who seek to oppress them. Sin seeks to oppress us and overtake our lives, to control us and to lead us into slavery, and Jesus delivers us. Jesus provides us with salvation, just as God repeatedly saved Israel, providing them with land and food and political space and religious space to worship the true God. Jesus does even more by providing our hearts with fellowship with God, to know the true God, and to be ultimately set free so that ultimately our lives in Jesus Christ are redeemed. Your life is slowly losing value, and we feel it every day, and that bitterness creeps in as we get older. And we just have this sense that they used to call me. They used to need me for these things. You come to the point of retirement, and your value and where you have invested your life and your occupation and your identity comes to an end. And you wonder, what is my value anymore? Who am I anymore? We go through these periods in our lives. Unimaginably, this is insane, but unimaginably, God invests our lives with more value than you could possibly imagine, raising us to eternal life with Him, a world and a life that we can't even speculate about. And we'll look back and we'll know that God has given us so much more. Our lives have so much more value, so much more meaning than we ever sought to pursue in our own lights. So the book of Ruth, uh, I hope that we're reading it together. I hope that we're fellowshipping around it. It's only four short chapters. I invite you to read it every week. And to find people in your small groups or just find friends to discuss it with, debate it with, think through these things because we're going to be fellowshipping around this. And it's a very important uh, lesson that God gives us of his providence that will lead us to, of course, King David and the great King of Kings as we look forward to the Christmas season that's coming forward. So let me invite the um, worship team back up and uh, I'll close us uh, with a prayer as they come forward. God of creation, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are the great God who's proven to yourself through human history time and time again that you're great and good and just and holy, that you hear your people, that you remember your people, that you deliver your people, redeem your people, and that you are not too great nonetheless to be a personal God to be a God of one man, Abraham. You are our God, and we have been grafted into the promises that you made to Israel. We, the church, have been grafted in. We have been included in those promises. And just like Ruth, we were once pagans. You were not our God. And now you have determined to be our God. People who didn't know you, just like Ruth, will say, Your God, Naomi, is now our God. And just as you've been perpetually faithful to Israel, your faithfulness is passed along to us. Um, Despite our sin and despite of our declining value, you forgive and you redeem. And Lord, in all of this, we remember your faithfulness and we thank you for your faithfulness. And we're going to spend time now worshiping you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.